Well, everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Uh, Jason, I was thinking instead of doing something from our past, maybe what we should do is do like the movies that are number one and number two in the box office right now. What do you think? That sounds fantastic. What are they? What are what's just tell me? Look it up, Google it, whatever you need to do. Tell me what number one and number two in the box office right now are. Number one and number two right now. It's kind of neck and neck. Uh-huh. Different week. It's is a it a Marvel movie. movie? No. Okay. Is it one of the new James Bond movies? No. Star Trek? No. Basically, every movie theater in the country is shut down except for drive-ins. And so, the number one and number two movies at the box office this week, coinciding with this podcast that we recorded over a month ago, Jaws and Jurassic Park. That is no joke. What? That is no freaking joke what a great coincidence i love it it's a crazy coincidence so i I really hope you guys enjoy what we have already recorded it just so happens that it coincides with this crazy event due to covid19 which we will no longer talk about (laughs) all right without further ado hello everybody and welcome to the surely you can't be serious podcast discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. Just when you thought it was safe to go back into the podcast. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. We are here for our Jaws versus Jurassic Park episode of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I'm here with my co-host and best friend, Jason Colvin. What's up, D? How you doing, How's man? Going, man? I'm good. This is going to be fun tonight. I really, really, I know I say this every time, but these movies get me fired up to talk about these movies change the course of movie history 20 years apart they really did it's crazy and i'm excited about one of them being the movie that came out the year i was born you know jaws came out in 1975 just a few months before i was born and it is monumental in the history of movies and it is such a great movie both of these movies were so impactful and imaginative and fun and scary and i mean they're just pure summer popcorn gold i just love both of these shows do you remember when you saw these movies for the first time i remember seeing jurassic park in the theater and being amazed and going back in the memory banks i would have had a girlfriend at the time so i'm sure i went and saw it with her but all i can remember is the emotion with jaws i can't say when i saw it for the first time because you know like i said it came out before just just before i was born yeah uh, but it was it was one of those movies that was a big factor of my childhood. My dad was very into sharks. We would watch all the shark documentaries long before Shark Week ever was a thing. Right. And we, you know, I learned to scuba dive with him whenever I was in grade school. And so I had all kinds of education about deep sea diving and shark. And we went shark fishing when I was a kid. We'd go to Florida and, and deep sea fish for all kinds of things, including sharks. Saw so a huge one. One of the times that we went, we saw one that was Jaws proportion shark. Like he was going by the boat and you're like, holy crap, this guy is as big as the boat. We weren't trying to catch those guys. Yeah, we weren't trying to catch those guys. We were just trying to catch the little ones, which were fun as can be to catch. But I've, I've always been a shark guy. That's, How about that's you? Awesome. Do you remember them? Well, so for Jaws, you know, we've talked before, you and I have a little bit of an age difference. So I was 
two when the movie came out. But I mean, Shark Mania took over the world in the late seventies, and so even though I was too young to see the movie or appreciate the movie or any of that stuff, I do recall the idea of you know sharks and being scared in the swimming pool. And even though I lived in a landlocked state, for some reason, you know, sharks <laughs> were kind of on my mind. You know, right? But, uh, I had a toy. It was like a shark set, and it the shark would open up and he have all this crap in his mouth and you had to fish out like wheels and <laughs> stuff like that. So sharks were, were part of my imagination because of this movie. Now, Jurassic Absolutely. Park, I saw an opening night. I, I had a roommate in college. His name was Craig Parrish, good friend of mine, friend of the show. It was like the perfect roommate for a summer roommate because every dime that we earned that summer, we spent on entertainment and doing <laughs> stuff and blowing it on stuff. So the weekend that it came out, the Friday, I believe it was Friday, June 11th, 1993, we saw it in Norman. So we were blown away. We were like, man, that is unbelievable what we just saw. Right. Next day, we drove to a Texas Ranger baseball game, came home the next day, went to Jurassic Park again. So it was a it was a killer weekend. Yeah, I can still, I can, I can remember the moment in the theater where you see the Brachiosaurus for the first time, and you're just like, "Holy crap! How did they do that?" It really was amazing. The other thing, and I'll just throw this out there: I hadn't really thought about it until just this moment. But when you were talking about the sharks, the poster for Jaws yeah. is so iconic. And I can, as you were talking, I'm like, I can remember drawing that shark over and over again, drawing that shark coming up to get the girl. Yep. Oh man, you're, you're absolutely right. One of the best movies posters of all time and then you go to jurassic park and again it's it's totally iconic poster that's the perfect color combination you get the black skeleton on the gold background with kind of the tropical lettering on it it's just both of them are masterpieces in movie poster history so do you want to talk about a little bit about the history of how these movies came to be is that where we want to start yeah, I'd say let's start just on the development of these two movies. Okay, so I'll start with Jaws since it came out first. The book was written by a guy named Peter Benchley. Now, Peter Benchley had been a journalist. He ended up being a speechwriter for LBJ. And then LBJ's term ended in 1969. And he spent the next few years struggling to make it as a freelance writer. And he's sitting on the beach kind of going through what he's going to do with his life. He thought back to a time where he had read a story back in the 60s about this fisherman who had caught this 4,500 pound great white shark. And he's like, I think that would be a great idea for a story. Have a man-eating shark that terrorizes a town. So he goes home and he tells his wife about it. And she says, I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) I think you should probably think of something else, but he doesn't listen to her. I'm glad he doesn't listen to his wife. (laughs) Right. And so every time his literary agent gets him in front of a publisher, he proposes two ideas. The first idea is a nonfiction book about pirates. And the second idea is man-eating shark terrorizes town. (laughs) And everybody goes, no, thank you. No, I don't think that anybody wanted to read that. Now, interestingly, the other movie that came out very close to the same time that he was involved in was called The Deep. You familiar with this movie? I am, yeah. Right. And and it is about pirates. And yes, Jacqueline Bissett, Google search. (laughs) 
Google search. <laughs> so interestingly, at the same time that he's making these pitches, there happens to be a, a documentary that comes out called Blue Water White Death. So this morning I called my dad and I was like, hey, you know, we're doing this thing. I remember sharks was a big part of me growing up. Tell me what happened when you went and saw Jaws. And there's this long pause and I'm like, um, it was a few months before I was born. And that helps. He's like, oh, okay. Let's see. We'd have been in Georgia at that time. Uh, yeah, I really don't. I don't remember. And I'm like, what? Okay. I can remember as a kid watching TV and seeing Ron and Valerie Taylor and you telling me things. And he's like, oh, yeah. Well, I saw Blue Water White Death back in 71. That was in Little Rock, Arkansas. And yeah, that was crazy. And so apparently it wasn't Jaws that was the big movie for him. It was this Blue Water White Death, which was a Ron and Valerie Taylor documentary where they're going and trying to film sharks. They were a couple of spearfishers who were champion spearfishers. And then they realized, hey, we're killing all the fish. Maybe we should just photograph them instead. And so they start shooting videos and they decide, let's try to video a great white shark because nobody else is doing it. Why not? Right? Right. Right. Well, why not is because they eat you. That's why not. <laughs> Dad said that it was just looking at the idiotic stuff that they would try to do just to get near a great white shark. Like they'd find dead whales and just wait for the sharks to come and start eating the whales so that they could try to film them. He said they were absolutely insane. He was saying, you know, cage goes in the water. This is dumb. In the water. These guys are going to die. And the chain mail swimsuit, all of that stuff. Those yeah. are all things that were impactful for him. And so that's why sharks were such a big deal. And then, of, so of course, they put out this documentary. It's interesting to folks. So Peter Benchley gets his funding to write the book of Jaws. So Peter Benchley, when he was doing his research for this book, uh -huh. came across a story of a shark that was just off the coast of the Jersey Beach in 1916. It attacked a swimmer. It ate a dog. It ate a boy. Actually, if you watch Jaws sort of sequentially, it's the same type of attacks. Oh, wow. Um, and Hooper actually mentions it in the film. The titles that were originally considered for the novel, A Stillness in the Water. His editor's like, mm, nah. He's like, okay, how about this one? Leviathan Rising. Mm, no. All right, how about Jaws of Death? Mm, no, that's no good either. So they sat and they kind of went round and round and round. And basically the only word that Peter Benchley and his editor liked was the word Jaws. And Peter Benchley's like, look, just call it Jaws. And they're like, well, we don't even really know what that means. He's like, yeah, but it'll look great on a book. <laughs> So that's how they got the title, Jaws. Is right. I don't even know if they say the word at all in the movie. I definitely don't know if they say it in the book. It is just a word that looks good. Four letters and it scares the crap out of people. Right. And it becomes a bestseller. And it spends 44 weeks on the bestseller list. Everybody's picking up this book and reading it back in 1974. And two of the guys that happen to pick up the book are David Brown and... Richard Zanuck. Richard Zanuck and David Brown had just come out of the big studio production world. Richard Zanuck's dad, Daryl Zanuck, was actually one of those cigar chomping studio guys, you know, like in the Three Amigos. Right. <laughs> one of those guys who he hired Richard to run his company. And then it, like, and Richard was like 26 at the time. 
And then he goes off to Europe and starts having an affair with this 20-year-old when he's 63. And she's like, okay, you're going to start writing me movies. He's like, okay, I'm going to start writing you movies. <laughs> Whatever you say. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So Richard is this young guy, but he's making these great movies. He he is involved with The Sound of Music. He's involved with hiring Francis Ford Coppola for writing Patton. And he's involved with The Planet of the Apes. All of these things are huge hits. And then after seven, eight years, he has a few flops. His dad is doing this stupid stuff with this girl. And <laughs> he basically cancels the contract with his dad's mistress. And so his dad gets mad and he comes back and he fires him. And so Richard's like, hey, you know what? Guess what? You're going to be next. And as it turns out, his dad had been giving his mom these shares of the company as kind of a, hey, I'm sorry, I'm having an affair right now. Here, have some more stock in the company. She takes all the stock, goes to the board of directors, and they throw out Daryl. So he's the last Whoa. of the cigar jumping. It's it's awesome. It's deserving of a movie on its own. But anyway, all through that process, David Brown becomes a head of the creative operations for 20th Century Fox. When Richard leaves, David leaves with him. They go and spend a bit of time with Warner Brothers, and then they go out on their own, form this production company. And one of the first movies that they produce is The Sting. And the next movie they produce is... Sugarland Express. Young director Steven Spielberg. So Steven Spielberg had been discovered by Sid Sheinberg, who was the CEO of Universal Pictures for about 40 years, and whose wife is Lorraine Gary, who you might know better as... Mrs. Brody. I can't remember Mrs. her name. Mrs. Brody. So they've got this book that they've read. They're both excited about it. They talk to each other like, we want to make this a movie. And so they work with Peter Benchley. They get this script. They hire a director. And the director is not Steven Spielberg. That's right. Actually, when they made the deal for the screenplay, the director was part of the deal. When Peter Benchley sold him the, the rights to make his story, he's like, well... This is the guy I want in charge. Well, right. then they bring him in. They have the sit down with him and they're like, okay, let's talk about what you got going and what do you think? And he's like, okay, so the whale pops up and scans the beach and they're like, shark. He's like, right, 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 shark. So anyway, when the whale comes up to the people, <laughs> they're like, we can't hire this guy. He doesn't know the difference between a shark and a whale. <laughs> Yeah. And so just before they had that meeting, Steven Spielberg happened to have been walking through and saw the script and they're like, hey, you know, tell us what you think of this script. And he reads it and he comes back and he says, hey, if you guys don't end up going with the director you have in mind, I would love to direct this. Okay. This is an interesting story. That is a nice little story. But the, the version that I heard was yeah. he was in the dude's office, looked down, saw a thick manuscript that said, jaws on it and he stole it and took it home and read it oh he's trying to get a crack in and he's like hmm this looks like a very important project i'm going to take this home figure this thing out look at it see what they're doing i love that about spielberg i mean he was doing whatever it takes to crack in you know and of course they end up offering it to him but at the time he's thinking about another script he's thinking about directing another movie you know about this no okay so he had done sugarland express and and Critics raved about the the quality of like the car chase scenes that they had had in Sugarland Express, but they had criticized him a bit for not developing the characters very well. Okay. And so he was considering the script called Lucky Lady, which did star Liza Minnelli, Gene Hackman, and Burt Reynolds. 
And he's really thinking, okay, this is a good way for me to develop some characters. I'll be able to put this on and I will have rounded myself out. So Sid Sheinberg, who was his mentor, who was the guy who had given the youngest director in history a long-term contract of seven years, is like, don't direct that, direct Jaws. And so he gives up. He says, all right, fine, I'll direct Jaws. And at the time he's directing Jaws, he's thinking, oh my gosh, this was the worst thing. You've, you've damned my existence. I'm going to get fired. I'm never going to work in Hollywood again. And Lady Luck has made Liza Minnelli and Burt Reynolds into a star. So when he's out in Martha's Vineyard watching a shark sink to the bottom of the ocean, <laughs> Burt Reynolds and Liza Minnelli are living it up. And he's like, what in the heck was I thinking? Yeah. One thing about this story, this movie, there was a writer's strike looming. And so they need to make it fast. Yeah, that was a huge deal because people went into the movie with some expectations that were misplaced. Okay. When whenever Zanuck and Brown decided, hey, you know, we can do this shark movie, we'll just get a shark trainer to train the shark. <laughs> Let's just train the sharks. There's no problem. Yeah. So I went and I asked a buddy of mine who's a scuba diving instructor and he dives with sharks all the time. And I'm like, you know, so what would you want to dive? And I'm asking these questions and he's like, well, you know, as long as you're with the shark trainer, it's okay. And I'm like, oh, can you train sharks? He goes, no, the shark trainer trains the people. I'm like, oh, okay. He's training the people how to be, you can't train a shark. Yeah. So they found that out the hard way. You're not going to be able to train a shark. So that meant they had to build one. In addition to that, Steven Spielberg, in a moment of artistic foolery, I don't know, he demanded that they film on the actual ocean. Any other director would have said, all right, we'll go to the back lot or we'll go over to a lake or whatever. But Spielberg was like, nope, it's not going to look like the ocean. I don't want to use it. We have to go and film in the actual ocean. I wonder how many times he went to sleep at night going, why the heck did I say that? Every step along the way during the making of this movie, it could have either been complete disaster or genius. Right. And he makes the right step every step of the way, even though he is precariously on the edge of falling and dying and never working again. It's the right step that he regrets every single time. It's the right <laughs> step that looks like the wrong step every single time. Let's flip over to Jurassic Park and talk about the development of Jurassic Park. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. So here we catch Steven Spielberg about 18 years down the road. By the time he gets to Jurassic Park, he has directed Jaws, Close Encounters, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, Empire of the Sun, Indiana Doom. Jones and the Temple of Doom. Last Crusade. Last Crusade. And now he gets to Jurassic Park. Yeah. This is based on a 1990 book by Michael Crichton. Right. Now, Michael Crichton writes this story about these guys who go to an amusement park and suddenly the attractions at the amusement park turn on the guests and start killing them. And the name of that movie is... Westworld. Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because as he was developing this story, Jurassic Park, he's like, I can't make it a theme park again. I've already done that. Right. He had come up with the idea of dinosaurs and come up with the kind of science behind it, but he couldn't figure out why. Why would we bring dinosaurs back to life? What would be the motivation? And honestly, I mean, the only one that really does make sense is an amusement park. I mean, it's, there's got to be a profit motive, right? That's right. He mentions in, in 1981, he had a screenplay that he was working on where it was like a Frankenstein type of thing where some guy figures it out. 
resurrects a dinosaur and then it terrorizes people. But yeah, the only thing that made sense was entertainment purposes. I mean, who would pay for this? There's right. no real scientific reason to do it, and it costs billions of dollars. So it has to be for entertainment purposes. Right. And his book idea got turned down. In his mind, he wanted he, – it was interesting to him that kind of universally kids are fascinated by dinosaurs. So he always wrote the book from the perspective – of a kid. He wrote it from a perspective of a kid who was at Jurassic Park. And he kept pushing this book on the publishers and nobody was interested. Nobody wanted to publish it. And finally, one of them said, I want a book that is for me, an adult, not a book that's from the kid's perspective. And it was that rewrite that led to the story that became Jurassic Park. That's interesting. That's really interesting because Steven Spielberg, when he later gets the directorial job, decides that he's going to shoot the movie with the awe of a child, which I think was genius. So you needed that adult story, but maybe from a kid's perspective and the awe and the fascination that goes with it. So as he's writing this book, he's working on a TV show called ER with Steven Spielberg. Right. It's and supposed talking, to be a movie. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, it ER started off as a movie idea. So they're sitting around one day and Spielberg's like, well, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm working on this story about dinosaurs. And Steven's like, well, tell me about it. So he's like, well, you know, amber and mosquitoes and, you know, dinosaurs. <laughs> and you know, so, DNA, dinosaurs. <laughs> and so, and, and bingo, Mr. DNA. Um, and so Spielberg's like, man, I'd love to direct that. He said, well, when I get done with it, you can have a crack at it, right? And so they had this kind of informal discussion and sort of agreement, which the lawyers later get involved and the blood-sucking lawyers get involved and they have to work out the details. But the studios were bidding on this before it was even complete. Yeah. Just the idea of this story. Right. Which that's how you know you're big time in Hollywood. Right. Well, I mean, they were all major studios, but they all had their own director associated with the idea. This is the type of stuff that really I I get fired up about. Like, we have this movie already in our history of Steven Spielberg, but this is what we could have got. You ready for this? Yeah. So Warner Brothers wanted it for Tim Burton. Right. That's the one that I'm just like, that would have been such a different movie. I mean, it would have been it would have been claymation dinosaurs. It's true. And it probably would, claymation archaeologists and probably claymation kids. That's it. Beetlejuice would have shown up and it'd have been weird. <laughs> Columbia. Michael Keaton would have played the T-Rex. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a floss raptor. Yeah. <laughs> Columbia. They wanted Richard Donner. And was it Joe Dante? Is that the other one? 20th Century Fox wanted Joe Dante. Who did Gremlins. Who did Gremlins. So that could have been interesting. Richard Donner, Lethal Weapon, Goonies, Superman. Superman. Makes good movies. Right. But here's the one that caught my attention the most. You ready for this one? Yeah. He didn't have the backing of any specific studio, but James Cameron wanted to make Jurassic Park. Uh, I can see why that captured your attention. You're the James Cameron. I love James Cameron's work. Yeah. This is what he wanted to do with it. You ready for this? Yeah. And you can see this coming, right? You know who he wanted to play Dr. Grant, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nuh-uh. Yes. And he wanted Bill Paxton as Malcolm. Okay. And Charlton Heston as Mr. Hammond. That I can kind of see, yeah. Yeah. But when Michael Crichton set the rights to the novel out for movies to bid on, he set the price really low. His price was $1.5 million. So when the bidding war went out for Michael Crichton's novel to be made into a movie, he set the price low on purpose. The price was set at $1.5 million 
because he wanted to guarantee that this movie was made. When he auctioned off the rights for a movie called Congo, it sat in development hell until after Jurassic Park, basically. So he got a chunk of money for it, but it didn't ever seem to get made, and he was frustrated with that process, and so he wanted to ensure that this movie was going to get made. All right, we will be right back after these messages. With so many podcasts out in the world, you have a plethora of options. Take a chance with Too Many Captains, a movie podcast. Mixing comedy with an academic look at film and Hollywood culture, this podcast is perfect for those looking for a fresh perspective. From deep dives into classic films, to debates on digital streaming versus physical media, and film discussions based on randomly chosen topics in our What Are We Talking About segments, there's something to satisfy all your movie podcast cravings. So if you're feeling lucky or feel the need for speed, grab your shaken martini or some fava beans and a nice Chianti and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. For more content, visit amoviepodcast.com. Find us on Instagram at Too Many Captains Productions and on Twitter at It's a Film Podcast. Too Many Captains, the jolliest bunch of podcasters this side of the nuthouse. I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island. All right, so let's flip it back to pre-production for Jaws. All right, so Zanuck and Brown were wrong about the idea that you can train a shark, so they then have to build one. They hired Joe Alves to design the shark. He did the model of New York and Escape from New York. And later on, he was the director of Jaws 3 in 3D. I don't know if that's something he should be proud of or not, but he was that guy. Not too bad (laughs) going from the guy who made the shark to the guy who makes the movie. But That's a pretty big jump right there. Yeah. So this is just a bit of trivia, but when they were doing Jaws 2, they fired their initial director. They fired John D. Hancock. And it was suggested at the time that Joe Alfs come in and co-direct with Verna Fields, who was the one who had edited Jaws. And she's a she's an amazing editor and amazing person all around, but they decided not to do that. They went with Janos Wizard to finish up Jaws 2. Okay. Side note real quick. Go ahead. What do you think about Jaws 2? Meh. It's okay. What do you think about Jaws 3? Horrible. What do you think about Jaws 4? You know, I talked about Jaws movies and my dad. That is one specific memory I have from my childhood. We went to go see Jaws 3 in 3D in the theater. I'm wearing the glasses. And three quarters into the movie, my dad turns to me and says, this is the most awful movie (laughs) I've ever seen in my life. We're leaving. Uh, What? (laughs) That the movie's not over. Yeah, I'm not going to watch the rest of this. I didn't realize that was an option. Yeah, I really didn't. I thought, man, once you're here, you got to go to the end. That's just what happened. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I, I didn't, I never got the experience of the exploding shark pieces coming at you in 3D. We were gone before that moment in the movie because okay. it was so bad. And Jaws 4 was worse. Okay. Jaws 2, pretty good. Yeah. Jaws 3 for a 10 year old me with 3D glasses on inside the theater. Yeah. I was entertained. I thought it was great. When the shark broke the glass in 3D, I nearly wet my pants in the movie theater. <laughs> All right. Jaws 4 was the biggest steaming pile of crap in 1987 with maybe the exception of Superman 4 Quest for Peace. I don't know. Ooh, uh, that's a hard one. I don't know that I can give a judgment call on which one of those is worse. We may have to talk about that later. Okay. So the shark that Joe Alves built was named? Bruce. Bruce. Do you know why it was named Bruce? Steven Spielberg's lawyer was named Bruce. Blood-sucking lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so he, he named the mechanical shark after his lawyer, which they built in Sun Valley, California, but never tested in the water. This is what I was talking about. These decisions that they made along the way could have been absolute train wreck disasters and in some cases really were, and they skillfully or luckily figured out a way around it. I really think that Verna Fields is such a major part of this movie being what it became because you had to, I mean, in the script, it called for shark and then shark and then shark, and there was no shark to be had. And so you had to do stuff and they had to come up with ways to give you the shark without showing you the shark. But as it turns out, That's the perfect thing to do because you're more scared of what you can't see than what you can see. It's absolutely true. And they they lucked into it. So there are three mechanical bruises that were made, each with specialized functions. One shark was open on the right side, one was open on the left side, and the third was fully skinned. I think each one of these ended up at the bottom of the Atlantic at one point or another. (laughs) But each shark costs... $250,000. You know, we didn't really talk about this, but the budget, the initial budget of Jaws, yeah, seven million bucks. Not very much. And when you get 10% of it into a shark that doesn't work at all in a movie starring a shark, right? He is the star of the movie, right? So the very first time that they are to have the shark. They put him in, they say action, and the shark sinks to the bottom of Nantucket Sound. (laughs) And as David Brown puts it, and we thought so did our careers in the movie industry with it. Okay. When you get a bunch of 20-somethings working on this thing, I I Mm -hmm. can just see the way it goes. Hey, we've built this shark. Great. Did you test it? Oh, yeah, it works great in the garage. Sweet. Should we (laughs) test it in the water before? Nah, we'll test it when we get out there. (laughs) Oh, you didn't um, mention that this is going to be salt water the whole time. I didn't realize that that was going to short out the shark. And talking about the 20-year-old. So one of the guys who helped out with the script and specifically helped out with the monologue that Quint does was a guy named John Milius. Mm-hmm. And he's a young guy. He's a friend of Steven Spielberg's. And one night, George Lucas shows up. And then they're probably, I'm guessing, drinking or whatever. And they're like, hey, let's go look at the shark. (laughs) (laughs) And they they go out and they're looking at the shark that doesn't work anyway. And then somebody gets the bright idea to climb into its mouth. And then all of a sudden, the jaw breaks. It's like a chunk. And John Milius is like, and we all scattered like children (laughs) who've just been caught. (laughs) Including the director of the movie. I mean, this is not... Three yeah, the the director groups, of that yeah. movie and the director of the future biggest blockbuster of the 70s. <laughs> it was Lucas who got stuck in there, by the way, which is yeah. hilarious. So. so this is very interesting to me, okay? The shark was untested. Not all the roles were cast, and they were still waiting on a completed script, and they had started principal photography. Yeah, holy crap. <laughs> Great, let's get started. Yeah, right. So, Action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not only that, you have a deadline. You know, we're we're not only going to get started; we're going to get started with a deadline because there's supposed to be this strike, and so they're doing everything to scramble to get done with this thing by June, so that they don't run into trouble with that strike. Peter Benchley wrote three different versions of the script, and finally told Spielberg, "I am written out. I cannot write 
another bit of this. And so Zanuck and Brown said, hey, Stephen, go talk to Howard Sackler. And Spielberg's like, who's that? He's a, he's a playwright. He wrote this play called The Great White Hope. And he's like, oh, perfect. <laughs> Great White? Yeah, sounds good. So they worked on the script and kind of got the basic outline of the movie. Then Spielberg tried to write a script himself. That didn't work out real well. And then he very wisely, this is another one of those brilliant decisions, says, okay, this is a intense, scary movie. We got to have some humor. I mean, what do I say? A movie is not going to be good unless there's at least a little bit of humor in there, right? That's so what he you goes, say. That's right. Yeah. So he goes and he finds Carl Gottlieb, who is a friend of his, who is a fantastic comedy writer. He, at the time, is working on working on TV scripts for The Odd Couple. He was one of the guys in MASH. He does some acting and, obviously, script writing. And so every night... They would shoot during the day, and then at night, they stayed in the same little cabin there on uh, Martha's Vineyard, and they would work on the script throughout the night. It's an incredibly stressful writing situation. I mean, basically, every hour of every day, you're either shooting a movie, writing a movie, worrying about a movie, thinking about the movie. I mean, Steven Spielberg has talked publicly about how he has nightmares about it's day one, I'm over budget, I need to get shots in, and then Shark's not working, and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I can identify with that. Like, I I still have dreams to this day. I haven't been in a play in 20 years, and I still have dreams that suddenly I'm at the stage, and I've not studied my lines. I don't know what the play is about, but I'm about to walk out on stage. And I'm in my underwear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hey, I thought this was interesting. So Carl Gottlieb told Spielberg, if we manage to pull this off, people will feel about the ocean the way people felt about the shower after watching Psycho. Yeah. And you know what? He is exactly right. Yeah, he nailed it. It's funny, you know, when he first, when Spielberg first sent the script to Gottlieb, he just attached a note to it and said, eviscerate it. So things are going so badly at this point, Steven Spielberg decides to quit. He said, he said multiple times he just was waiting to get fired. And eventually he had just had so much of it that he was like, forget it. I can't, I can't finish this. I'm going to quit. And so Richard Zanuck heard he was coming, heard he was coming to quit, went and got his Jaws t-shirt. They already had the merchandise made, right? <laughs> He goes and puts his T-shirt on before Stephen can walk in. And when Stephen walks in and sees him in the shirt, he cannot bring himself to quit. And so Zanuck says, I think I might have saved the movie just by changing my clothes. That's awesome. <laughs> what a great story that is. All right, D, we ready to go talk about pre-production for Jurassic Park? Right. So interestingly, these two these two movies, nearly 20 years apart, end up having the same kind of trouble. They build a gigantic T-Rex. They actually build several of them. It is animatronics, just like the shark was supposed to be, hydraulics and everything. But <laughs> they get it on. They have, they've tested it all out. It works well. You know, we're not going to be in the ocean, so no problem there. Until Steven Spielberg decides, hey, the T-Rex scene needs to be in the rain. It needs to be pouring rain. Yeah. And he's like, um, uh, uh, <laughs> if I may, um, we've tested this for the weight that it has on it right now. And you're about to pour water on it. And it's made out of foam rubber. And he's like, well, let's see if it works. 
<laughs> Steve Spurs like, listen, dude, I've been through Jaws. <laughs> Tests are overrated. Okay. And so the answer to the question was, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> if, you pour, <laughs> if you pour the rain on top of the foam rubber, it makes it very heavy. And the hydraulics that were specifically precisely tuned to adjust to a certain amount of weight do not do it right. And the T-Rex started shivering in the rain. <laughs> It looked like it had. It was like having a seizure or something. It was. Sh- it was shaking, shaking, shaking. They they would take a break from time to time, and suddenly the T Rex, without anybody there, would just start moving. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about that T Rex for a minute. It took two years of prep to get the sets and all the dinosaurs ready to go for this movie. Two years. Right. So they hired the guys that were the best in the business at animatronics at this time. Right. So you're talking about guys like Stan Winston, Phil Tippett, and Crash McCreary. Yes. They took on this project. Steven Spielberg was like, okay, guys, I need dinosaurs on screen. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to do as much animatronics as I can. I want to subsidize that with stop motion stuff. And then maybe we do a little bit of computer stuff here and there if it works. What do you right. think? And they're like, sounds good. Yeah, heck yeah, let's do it. Without knowing whether they could actually do it or not. And the, the animatronics that they have on this are amazing. They are amazing. They really are. They look realistic. And and from what I understand, the boy who played Timmy, when he saw the animatronic Triceratops for the first time, he started crying because it <laughs> looked so amazing and real. It's really, really good. When you say animatronics, I think Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the, the jug band Christmas, whatever, where they're up right. there. and Everybody's imagining the sharp robotic movements up and down and the heads turning sharply and scarily. They look like robots. Yeah. <laughs> but all this stuff was hydraulic. And so when the door shuts to the Explorer mm-hmm. and the T-Rex is like, sharply pulls his head around to look, you think it's real because it's, it doesn't shake and it doesn't move like a robot, you know? Right. They're they're filming a being that looks real, actually moving. Now, you mentioned just a second ago, stop motion. Do we want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. So stop motion, if you watch some of the older, like uh, Clash of the Titans, you can, see th- you can see how stop motion looks. And there's a bit of jitteriness to it uh, because with stop motion, what you're doing is you are, you're taking a figurine of some kind, you are photographing a frame of film with the camera, and then you're moving it a little bit, and then you're doing another one. Well, what that means is you have a series of still shots as opposed to a series of someone in motion, and so you get this jitter. And what they had developed was a thing called motion blur. And so they called the guys over at Industrial Lights and Magic, which was just, I mean, in a little warehouse at the time. Right. And they said, hey, can you guys help us out and put some motion blur with this stop motion dinosaur stuff that we got going so that it looks more like it's in motion. And they said, yeah, or we could just do the whole dinosaur. And the head, the head of ILM at the time was like, Hey guys, you know, shut up. You know, Stan is a friend of mine. (laughs) He gets us jobs like this, you know, shut up. You're going to try to take his job away from him. That's not cool. And Spielberg was like, Hey, you know, just show me whatever you got, I guess. But the kind of director, the manager of ILM was like, you guys don't do this. All right. Just leave it alone. But they weren't going to do that on their off time. They would come after hours and they developed a 
running T-Rex skeleton. Skeleton. Yes. And so the manager was like, don't you dare show that to any of the Jurassic Park people. And so when Kathleen Kennedy came in, who was the producer of Jurassic Park, when she came in to see what their motion blur looked like, he, of course, had it playing on a monitor. And she was instantly like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. This is amazing. The world is about to change. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I actually wrote down the date. I thought this was interesting. So we talked about when the match meets the gasoline. Right. This is it, right? So April 20th, 1992, they called Black Monday because that was the day that CGI was realized as being much better than stop motion. And Spielberg said, we're going with this. And they yeah. realized, I heard one guy who was the stop motion animator. He's like, you know, we knew that our job was going to end one day. It's kind of like when you have a dog. You know the dog's going to die, but when the dog actually dies, you still grieve like you weren't expecting to. Right. They didn't get fired. Spielberg no. kept them on. They were the experts in the motion of dinosaurs. I mean, they had done all kinds of work. They had a, a database of knowledge that was very useful. This is a huge moment in movie-making history. I don't want to glaze over this real quick. but No, I mean, this is the most important thing that this did for movie history i mean you you move from we use computers to do a little bit of cleaning up to we make living breathing organisms with computers that you believe are real yeah it's incredible and 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 i'm gonna i'm gonna point this out and i somebody liable to throw something at me for this this is interesting So the idea of Jurassic Park is, of course, uh, that John Hammonds creates this thing that ends up, the thing he creates destroys his own creation, right? Yes. So Steven Spielberg had been the special effects guy for 20 years, right? He had been, he had, he had done amazing things for a 20 year period, amazing effects. You got Close Encounters, you got E.T., you got Jaws, you get Jurassic Park. And then after Jurassic Park, he doesn't make really any special effects movies anymore. Like he loses his edge and the thing that he was a part of creating ends up destroying who he was. Hey, interesting. That's interesting. I do think it's funny that uh, when the stop motion guys realized that, that the computer generated effects were going to take over this project, mm-hmm. one guy said to the, the other guy, he said, we're out of a job. And the other guy said, don't you mean extinct? <laughs> and when Spielberg heard that, he's like, that's going in the movie. The... Um yeah, they so once it started, once it started rolling, they were literally creating new things every day and making it better every day. The guy said we would do things that a week before we had no idea that we could do just because we were given free reign on this and we ended up amazing ourselves once it was all finished. We would do something that we thought was done and we'd get better the next day and then we didn't prove it. We couldn't believe how fast we were moving. And just so it's clear, in this movie, there's only about 15 minutes worth of dinosaur footage in the movie itself. (laughs) And nine of that is animatronics. I mean, we're talking about eight minutes of digital footage that changed the landscape of movies from that point on. And I'm just going to say, from my personal perspective, in my opinion, 
the minimizing of computer generated effects is important because it grounds it in the real world. When I watch movies like, I don't know, some of the later Star Wars movies where it's all CGI. Yeah. It just doesn't work for me. It's, it's dead, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we did man of steel. Zack Snyder says at one moment in the, in the documentary that they did, he feels like that CGI can be useful, but if a, character is putting his hands on something it needs to be real and i think that's a good line to draw especially as far as it's come at this point but there are a great many movies out there that they don't they don't hold fast to that rule and some of the cgi is just an absolute distraction and the thing that's springing to my mind is of course jar jar binks and obi-wan kenobi's inability to look him in the eye <laughs> and I think I said this before, but I'll say it again because it makes my point. I'm watching the Jedi Council with my boy who's eight at the time who says, Is this a cartoon? Uh, no. Then why is Yoda animated? Yes. That's right. Go. Yep. If if it looks like it's animated, you shouldn't have it in the movie. You had something real before. So as a rule, anytime you're watching Jurassic Park and you see the full body of the dinosaur, that's a computer generated effect. Okay. So the T-Rex at the, at the pad, when he's on top of the car, chewing up the, you can actually tell when you see his full body, that's computerized. When all you see is his teeth, that's animatronic. The real famous uh, footprint in the mud by the T-Rex, that's animatronic. All that is, is a pair of legs that they made a special animatronic for. Spielberg had this exposition problem, right? Uh-huh. So he needed to explain how they got the dinosaurs and how they created it and its DNA and all this weird dinosaur stuff. DNA. Yeah. So he came up with the, <laughs> the Mr. DNA ride that the main characters go on and explains how this all happens. And they said it took uh, 15 pages of script and cut it down to three. Yeah. Genius and, move. Yeah. And it's, it's so very simplified and but perfect i mean because it's a perfect exposition it gives you what you need to know and it's engaging and there's a great little scene where they look like dig dug as they're digging through the ground that's it the amber all right everybody that will do it for this episode of the surely you can't be serious podcast please join us next week as we take on part two of jaws versus jurassic park jason Join us next week where you'll get the head, the tail, and the whole damn podcast. (laughs) All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.